How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Miss the show? No worries. We've got you covered on point and on the podcast. The liberals said they're ready to turn on the spending taps. Well, geez, it's more like a fire hose. It's been gushing for months. Question is, does this met spending make sense? And is it being done in the right places? We talked to a restaurant owner who eloquently points out the very unfair rules, keeping them closed and the big stores open and freely spreading germs. And sure, follow the health advice, but we're not wrong to question these restrictions before we just roll over on our rights. Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? We know... The winter ahead will be hard. For far too many families, it will be a winter of loneliness and grief. Mm, If you were expecting this fiscal update to give you the warm and fuzzies, oh, it will not. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, November 3rd. Welcome to a new week. And uh, on this Cyber Monday, it looks like the Trudeau government is going on a major spending spree of sorts. And look, this is the first time that we're getting a glimpse of our financial books in 18 months, which is unheard of. And it's a scary read. And it's not an actual budget, so it's not detailed. And nor can it be scrutinized because there is legislation in it that does need to get passed and passed fast if we're going to get help to those who are absolutely desperate. And if it's not passed, well, then we could be heading into an election, which wouldn't that be a fun way to spend the Christmas holidays? And um, a pandemic's no excuse for this. I mean, the provinces have all delivered budgets. Other G7 countries have delivered budgets. And with hundreds of billions flying out the door, I mean, if ever we needed transparency and scrutiny, it is now. So we're going to go through the details of these numbers at eight o'clock with a brain that deals with numbers and all these kinds of things and get, you know, a little bit more detailed. But the dirty of uh, the down and dirty of today is that we are hemorrhaging money, just hemorrhaging money. The deficit projection is $381 billion, and that's based on best case scenario. If, of course, a vaccine arrives, if we ever get rapid testing and wide circulation, but it, it could go beyond $400 billion the longer this thing goes on. And then you look at our debt, it's at a whopping $1.1 trillion, but on a trajectory to hit $2 trillion. And they're not talking fiscal anchors anymore, because the new term you're going to start to hear is fiscal guardrails. But guardrails aren't going to help if there's no real you know, plan to get us beyond what we're seeing, which are moving lockdowns that just keep kicking the pain down the road. And there's not a lot of detail you know, to explain how this update gets us back on a path to recovery, which Pierre Polyevra says is, well, it's going to get us to that cliff. We are not at the cliff or even on the edge of the cliff, but we can now see the cliff. 
and this government is running towards it as quickly as humanly possible. Get it? Okay, so here we go. There's going to be $100 billion spent over three years, which is aimed at kick-starting the economy. But what that is going to be spent on, we have no idea. They have given us no details. There is $25 billion in new spending. We're talking money for long-term care, money which will boost your child care benefits. There's uh, an extension to the wage subsidy, so things like rent relief, the loan program, uh, things like those are going to get extended to March. And they've created a new lockdown support program, which will create uh, extended loans to hardest hit businesses. And also in their freelance put aside $2.7 billion so that uh, folks can upgrade and retrofit their homes. And this was a very, very popular program back in the day. And it got canceled back in 2012 because it was so popular, it got way too expensive. That is back. So if you want to put in, you know, uh, climate friendly lighting or whatever, you can do that. And for the hardest hit sectors, and I'll get some clarity on this at 8 o'clock, things like tourism, hospitality, hotel, arts, uh, entertainment, they'll be given access to government-backed loans with below market interest rates. But nowhere in here did we see fixes to programs, you know, if you're a new business, maybe you're self-employed, and there are a lot of people that, that are in those categories that, that just can't qualify for anything. So they're still gaping holes. And they're also keeping in place a tax that comes into play in the new year, which drives up uh, payroll taxes, uh, your CPP. And this is going to really hurt not just businesses, but it's going to take more of your paycheck. And so I'm not sure why they wouldn't cancel that. But most businesses that you talk to forced into these lockdowns have said, look, I don't need a loan. It's not helping. It's going to buy me a few months, but it's just adding to the growing debt. And so there are lots of band-aids here for businesses, but as Aaron O'Toole points out, it's not going to help really those in need. If this government spent half as much time meeting with real Canadians, small business owners, than they spend on photo ops, they would know that workers, small business owners, are asking for clarity. Canadians in a pandemic aren't asking them to ban single-use plastics. They're asking for details on when the vaccine gets here, how it's being distributed, how it's being preserved at minus 70. How can they save their aging parents from a senior's home or a hospital bed? This prime minister needs to get his priorities straight. There was nothing on pharmacare, which surprised me. There was nothing on national childcare, which surprised me. But they did announce that, so $20 million will be spent to study the issue the hell do we need a study for? We don't need a study. That's not going to help parents. It's not going to help women who are told are having to quit jobs uh, to be home during these lockdowns with kids. I mean, the last thing parents need right now is a study. They need clarity. They need a plan. They're going to be slapping HST and GST on the tech giants, things like uh, Amazon, uh, Prime, Disney, Netflix, all the things that got us through many of you through the pandemic but it sounds great but that cost is going to get passed on to to us the consumers so i'm not sure how that helps and look it pains me to say this but we do need to spend now we have to spend now to spare the losses later but i look at these numbers and they're vague and main street's dying 
Main Street's dying and the middle class just being pummeled here. And the longer this thing goes on, the deeper we get buried. And we can't count on a vaccine coming immediately. It's certainly it's months away, which is going to mean more restrictions, more waves, more loss. And the spending, you know, what we heard today is so short on detail, it's really hard to see how it's going to help with an actual recovery. And as Jagmeet Singh points out, those in the hardest hit sectors, uh, you know, they needed help months ago. It's not here. I was hoping that it would be different, but really the three key things that we pointed out earlier, you know, none of those have been addressed. We see a liberal government that is not willing to ask the wealthiest to pay their fair share. They have not really taken any concrete steps to, to look at revenue sources from the pandemic profiteers, the excess profits made during this pandemic, nor a tax on wealth. They're in fact not even willing to really put any put in place any real tax measure on on the web giants, those who are making massive, if not record, profits off the backs of people in our country. Continue to pay virtually no tax in our country, uh, and nothing that the Liberal government has done has really changed that. They have not put in place the help to sectors that are in need. I think about the aerospace and workers of the airline industries, workers in the tourist sectors. The workers of the hardest hit sectors can't count on any help, nor is that help that's being proposed, the the small gestures being proposed, nor are those gestures even tied directly to jobs. So for all the billions announced, um, we're not really getting value for money. And uh, the economic carnage is coming. You, You can't see it quite yet. And when it comes, it's going to forever change our main streets, our communities. And you can't put a dollar value on those kinds of losses. When you look at the CFIB, I mean, their data shows 160,000 small businesses are going to be lost to this crisis. But it's pretty sobering when you realize that data was collected before a second lockdown. So we'll get new numbers, but the losses are going to be pretty extraordinary. And it's not that they want help. They're desperate for it. They need it. And there's a big difference. What businesses want is clarity. They want stability. They want to be able to open their doors. They want to be able to compete and earn money at the most important time of year. What they want is, you know, basically to protect the decades of hard work that has now been erased by a pandemic that they didn't cause and are being crushed by such unfair rules that make no sense and in no way will actually keep us safe. And what help did they get today? Uh, You know, a whole bunch of Band-Aids that once ripped off are are just going to hurt like hell. And this is a uh, confidence motion. So these measures need to be voted on and we'll learn more in the coming days. But it doesn't sound like Jagmeet Singh is very happy about it. Will he support it? I don't know. Probably. I mean, can you really imagine us going to an election heading into Christmas in the middle of the second wave? Who knows? Maybe the liberals would want one. Maybe they want it before reality sets in because the real freedom only comes with a vaccine. And if it is months in the making, that won't make for a very popular time to go to an election in the spring. We are not at the cliff or even on the edge of the cliff, but we can now see the cliff and this government is running towards it as quickly as humanly possible. 
Pierre-Paul dealing with uh, the numbers today, and uh, that is what he makes of this fiscal update. And, you know, the devil's always in the details, but uh, today's update is so kind of fact-free. It's very hard to know what the Trudeau government's plan is to get us through this crisis or back to a road of recovery. And there are promises. You've got the $100 billion in spending over the next three years. Again, don't know where that's being spent uh, or who it will help or how it will stimulate the economy. There's the $1 billion for long-term care. No dollar figures for provincial health care that the premiers have been asking. And while they promise, you know, we're going to build back better, uh, there was no pharmacare mentioned, no child care mentioned other than a study. And uh, what we don't get and desperately need is detail of uh, what this government's plans are to get us through what they call a very dark winter and more, you know, give us something to look forward to, like maybe a recovery. Aaron Woodrick is executive director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And, um, you know, I, you know, they said that they were going to open the taps to, to spending. And I thought, well, gee, when did they ever close those off? It's been like a fire hose for, for months. But what'd you make of today's update? Yeah, you're right. And I heard them say they were going over the taps. I had the same reaction. But you just sometimes you want to throw your arms up in exasperation, Alex. I mean, we had an update in the summer that didn't tell us any details. The throne speech had no details. This document is very long, but they don't they won't allow themselves to be pinned down on anything. There's all kinds of scenarios. Maybe the deficit's three hundred and eighty one billion. Maybe it's four hundred and forty billion. Uh, you know, maybe we'll turn off spending at some point, someday, we'll let you know later on. I mean it's it's immensely frustrating. They they talk out of both sides of their mouths. They say things like, Well, we're gonna put in some fiscal guardrails when mm-hmm. things get better. Well, Alex, the whole point of guardrails is if there's a cliff there to keep you from going off the cliff. If you wait till you get down from the mountain, that's not the time to put in guardrails. So this whole exercise was just extremely exasperating. Well, it is because I think right now, um, you know, if we can find any kind of stability, especially for the middle class and for the small business owners who are taking the biggest hit here, um, certainly the private sector, you know, give them something to go on. And what was missing, you know, if we're going to spend this kind of money, and I'm not suggesting we shouldn't be as much as that pains me, I mean, we have to spend it, but make sure it's value for spending. In other words, if you're going to help out small businesses, give them some money instead of crafting this policy, which makes them carry more debt um, and more burden. Uh, you know, if they're going to be locked down, make them whole, but come up with some kind of spending that makes sense and brings stability. Yeah. And there, there is stuff in here that's not terribly objectionable. I mean, they've targeted groups and businesses that have been impacted and everybody understands that. I don't think that's what anyone is criticizing. It's things like the fact that, that uh, the minister says, you know, they're going to embark on a stimulus plan that could be $100 billion, but she doesn't know what they're going to spend it on. And get this, they're only going to start doing that after the economy starts to recover, which kind of defeats the point, don't you think? If you're mm. going to spend to stimulate, why would you wait until the economy is recovering? And why would you commit to spending an amount before you know what you actually need to spend on? Yeah, I mean, this was a government that ran on running small deficits for three years, and then they balanced the books, and then it blew their brains out in spending. And, and I mean, just before this pandemic hit, I mean, the government was running a $27 billion deficit, and that was considered shocking. <laughs> Compared to the numbers that we're seeing today, that pales. I mean, that's nothing. But, you know, the, the easy things that they could have done, I mean, they could have gotten rid of this tax, the CPP expansion, which is coming in the new year. It's going to drive up a lot of business costs, certainly for payroll. And it's also going to cost, um, you know, more for everyday people's paychecks. And so I don't understand why they wouldn't have put that on hold. 
Yeah, and I don't understand why there's not a single thing we could find in that document where they actually thought they could save money. I mean, set aside all the pandemic spending and all the emergency spending. Even before that, there's still $350 billion in spending, and they couldn't find a dollar to save in all of that? I mean, it's, this is extremely uh, you know, outrageous for most Canadians who work in the private sector who've had to make do with less. You know, they've cut jobs, they've lost their business, but government can't find anything anywhere in the entire government to save money on? It's just not, just not believable. Yeah, and then they bring in this um, tax, uh, which will sound great on the surface because you're going after big tech, but <laughs> big tech's going to throw it onto the consumers. So if we're stuck in our house watching Netflix or Disney Plus or Amazon Prime, any of these things, all of that gets more expensive for the consumers. The big tech companies don't suffer for it. No, it was really weird watching some of these groups cheering that, you know, they're finally going after big tech. Well, it's not big tech that's paying the sales tax on your Netflix subscription. It's you and me and everybody else. So Mm -hmm. congratulations, you've just nailed Canadians with a cost, which, by the way, the prime minister himself had said as recently as August that the last thing Canadians need right now is is higher costs. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised. I mean, there was nothing in there on pharmacare. There was nothing in there on um, daycare uh, other than a study, which I think is the stupidest thing because no one needs a study right now. They need childcare. <laughs> but there was those big, bold promises were not in there, which I, I, I guess I should feel relieved over. But again, it's just, um, you know, it doesn't give you any sense of where are they going because they, they released you know, their throne speech in the fall. And this should have given us some kind of idea of their building back better Uh this doesn't explain any of that. You're absolutely right. And like, I, I'm, if there's one good news thing in this uh, update, it was that they did resist the temptation to sort of blow the bank on some of these things that had nothing to do with the pandemic. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of childcare specifically, I got three kids, Alex. I mm-hmm. put them all through childcare. I'm fully aware that it's not mm-hmm. cheap. Uh, but this is also something that's it's provincial jurisdiction, clearly. And if the government couldn't afford this when the deficit was only $19 billion, it's really hard to start making the argument that they can splash out on a national program like that when the deficit is now, uh, you know, $380 billion. Now, the pushback will be, you know, we, of course, have to spend and, um, you know, you don't want to be the person pushing back saying, no, 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 we're not. We can't spend right now. It's not the time to talk about recovery. But at some point, we do have to, you know, talk about recovery. And, and, And recovery can come in different ways. A, a vaccine. B, rapid testing. C, giving us some kind of indication of a plan how to live with this thing if it's going to be around for 8 to to 12 months. I mean, we can't just keep locking things down. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, the measures in this fiscal update that dealt with basically treading water, again, I don't think many people object to those. It's where the government starts to lock itself into A, permanent spending, or Mm -hmm. B, spending plans on stimulus that they haven't even figured out what they're going to spend on. I mean, for goodness sake, if you need to spend on something, figure out what it is. You don't go the other way. You don't say, I'm just going to come up with a number and then figure out some things to spend that money on. Right. And so, you know, there is a chance. I mean, this is a, this has to be voted on, and there is a very good chance it, you, we could have a government that falls. Maybe they want to put the poison pills in now, bring the government down as unbelievable as it would seem in a second wave and right before Christmas. But if they go to an election in the spring, the liberal government risks going in when there's no vaccine. And if that goes wrong, they will be diminished. So anything can happen with this thing. It can. It was, it was actually surreal to see the NDV come out. They actually called this, believe it or not, Alex, they called it an austerity. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. It's, yeah. How can you? It's, it's literally the deficit is 20 times larger than the last one, but apparently that's what austerity is. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, but again, Jagmeet Singh has been critical before. Will he actually put his money where his mouth is uh, on this? I, I, anything can go, but again, uh, unless he can negotiate, and that's what he's been able to do, you got that on sick days, um, maybe he can negotiate some things out of this. But I don't know what he would negotiate because the big thing for him were things like pharmacare, um, you know, childcare, the big ticket items that we just don't have money for. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, just coming down to the, the level of the regular Canadian, I think most Canadians accept that we're in a unique situation. And so temporary emergency spending, I think most Canadians will let that go. But there's no mandate for these massive new permanent programs. No one asks Canadians. I, I think if you ask them, I think they can easily draw a distinction between stuff, you know, throwing people a life preserver, very different than, uh, than building something permanent that's going to cost billions of dollars from now until forever. Right. I mean, but they did put that uh, very popular program of um, upgrades and, uh, you know, that's a lot of money for people to be able to put into their house. And that's what people are spending money on is upgrading their house. And that is something that was uh, canceled in 2012 because it got too expensive, but they've put that back in there. Yeah. And this is going to be the challenge, right? People love getting free money. Uh, the challenge is when the government starts to try and think of ways to, to pay for it, it's going to be one of two things. They're either going to have to cut and that's not popular or they're going to have to raise taxes and they're not going to be able to get it all from, you know, the Weston family and the Thompson family. I'm sorry. There's just not enough billionaires for us to squeeze to make up a difference of almost $400 billion. No kidding. Welcome to a raise in GST or HST. We will find out, I guess. All right, Aaron, we'll um, continue watching the fallout on this as always happens in the days after, but I appreciate your time on this. Thanks a lot, Alex. Wanted to read you something that came to my um, Twitter feed over the weekend. I reposted it because I thought it was so eloquent and pretty much sums up just how unfair and nonsensical these shutdowns have been. And I can't say it better than the person who wrote it, so I'll just read what they wrote. As I walk into the grocery store with 30 other people at the same time, I think about my restaurant, which allows parties of six total and meticulously spaces out reservations by 10 minutes, ensuring guests that aren't from the same party don't arrive at the same time. As I take a cart that's just been handled and sanitized, I think about my restaurant, which invested thousands of dollars on ink and paper to print disposable menus to ensure no two guests touch the same menu. As I walk over to the produce aisle with 15 to 20 other people around me, I'm reminded of the strict no mingling, no walking around the restaurant other than to use washrooms or enter exit policy we have in place and the six feet distance between tables, which has cut our capacity in half. As I watch the woman next to me pick up apples with her hand, check them closely, and then put it back on the open pile and repeat this until she finds the perfect apples, the same thing that all the other people that day who want an apple will then do and then put those apples into their mouths. I think of the two-step sanitation process in place at my restaurant for all cutlery and dishes and glassware in between every single guest and the sanitation of every surface guest's touch. Tables, chairs, salt and pepper shakers. As I watch the man in the next aisle over ignore or not notice the directional errors on the ground, I think about my restaurant and the constant redirecting our staff codes uh, does of guests by locking certain doors, blocking areas off, and the work my team does to simply not allow guests to walk where they're not supposed to. As I walk down the cereal aisle, I see a person with their mask off so they can talk on the phone and are reminded of my restaurant where our masking policy has lost us so much business we will not allow guests who don't cover their nose and mouth and chin while not sitting at their designated seat as per the bylaw in place of our region. As I check out the cashier, I use my debit card to pay and I see the plastic film covering the terminal. 
It wasn't sanitized after the person before me used it. I'm reminded of the sanitizer used at the debit terminals in between each guest every time at my restaurant. As I stand at a crowded exit trying to leave, I'm reminded of the detailed contract tracing in place at my restaurant that records the name, phone number, table number, arrival, and exit time, as well as a server and section the guests sat in that is in place in my restaurant. Not one of those pieces of information was taken from any customer here. As I get into my car and watch all those people leave the store, I wonder which person will visit my establishment after contracting COVID at this grocery store, and I wonder why on earth my restaurant will be blamed as a source. Restaurants are being targeted as the source of COVID infection because we're one of the only industries required to provide contact tracing. Someone with COVID could have gone to Costco, Home Depot, Walmart, the mall food court, any grocery store, yet it's the restaurant that took their detailed info that will be forced to close and deemed responsible for the infection. You blame restaurants for the spread after thousands of dollars invested in equipment training and stricter policies than everywhere else. Prove it. Scott Fraser is the head fire starter of Hogtown Smoke. And Scott, um, I couldn't say it better myself, so I thought I would just read what you guys wrote because I was just, it sums up perfectly what I think the frustration you and others uh, in the small business sector are sharing right now. Uh, hi, thanks for having us. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Full transparency, uh, I can't take credit for all the words that uh, was posted by my partner, Glenn, but it mirrors everything we see every day going through this process since last March. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it, and it's getting frustrating. And, and uh, we go through all these hoops because we know we have to and we know we should, um, you know, to... You know, invest in technologies, uh, and like like uh, it was mentioned, we we started with printing out menus every day to going contact list with technology to going to QR codes to now you can actually order on your phone and pay your bill on the phone, so you don't have to touch anybody. Um, uh, you don't have to communicate with a waitress anymore. You can actually order on your phone, and it goes straight into the POS. All of this is is our part in the restaurant industry as a whole's part in trying to, to do what we have to do to get this COVID thing under control. Uh, and it just gets very frustrating when it seems to be we're the ones pointed out uh, as the cause or, or a good chunk of the cause when clearly common sense just tells you it's not. Um, and then this week it's just been brought to the forefront uh, with, uh, especially if you happen to own a barbecue restaurant like us, Mm-hmm. is um you know adam got to the point uh, adam says that he lost i think he just he just lost his his, his will to to kind of just bite your tongue and not say anything yeah um, i mean i don't think he speaks for all small businesses i understand the fight no. i just think he became yeah. the magnet for every um anti-lockdown anti-masker yeah. and it doesn't speak for all businesses because most businesses are in fact doing everything they can nail salons barbers because they're held everything. to a different account when it comes to i mean any anytime you even open one of these places you're already you know the bar is set pretty high on, on cleanliness and, and things you have to go through with training and so it very much at this point of the pandemic as we hit this second wave that we are very much picking winners and losers because we're not in this together right um i mean we've taken it what, what was frustrating like yeah restaurants we're we're health inspected upside down and backwards um we were taking temperatures at the door before temperatures were i don't even think we're supposed to or have to take temperatures but we did because we thought it was an essential you know essential thing to do 
what was frustrating for us is we're going along this road. We're doing everything we can do. Um, they gave us these cafe TO um, patios, which were great and helped us out. And, and then all of a sudden we lose those. So we yeah. start investing money and time in our, we have a rear patio. We put in big heaters. We started getting uh, structures to keep uh, the snow out. And then all of a sudden we get to a hour back down under another shutdown. Um, yet I can go, why can I go to Walmart? And buy, um, you know, buy my groceries and then slip over and buy a 60-inch TV, uh, um, some Halloween candy that's left over, and uh, a Christmas tree. Uh, clearly not essential versus essential. And all I want is, as a, a small business owner, and I know most small business owners, we just want it to be equal. Yeah. Come up well, you want to survive. Back. I mean, uh, so when, yeah. when I when when you hear the changes today, the, the update fiscally, I mean, they've, they've extended some programs. I mean, are you guys going to survive? You guys are a, a pretty known name well, in the city of Toronto. Are, are you going to survive this? Well, I'll tell you, we we lost our 300 seat restaurant within the first five weeks of COVID. Mm-hmm. Luckily, we had the original one in the beaches um, that had the ability to scale back. Um, yeah, I think we'll survive. Rent, rent subsidies in, but we haven't seen it yet. Um, and it's not the most easy process to get the money. The forms are fairly complicated. The calculations are very complicated. Um, would we be here if it wasn't for what the government's done up till now? No, we'd be done. I have a fantastic landlord in the beach. Um, it's, uh, but what I've lost is 100 employees over the course of a year. Um, well, and some of these people I consider friends. Um, and I have some of these friends that aren't, aren't happy with us because they think, you know, or they, you know, they're upset that they don't have a job. And, you know, I'm upset that we couldn't keep jobs. And, you know, my kids, I, you know, my daughter relies on working in restaurants to, to pay a good chunk of her university. You know, yeah. me and her mother are in a situation now where where's that money going to come from? Yeah. um, Well, businesses are people and it's ironic that the government that shut you down is the only one that can save you. But even that has been um, done at a a glacial pace. I'm running up against the clock. I'm hoping that we'll have you on again. But I really want people to understand what the core of this issue is for small businesses. Yeah, we uh, we want to survive. We just want, you know, it's, it, we need it to be an evil, not even a completely even playing field, just make the playing field similar. Yeah. You know, I yeah. understand Walmart plays a lot of money in rent and whatever, but it can't be too hard for them to close off a section if it's too hard for me to close off my whole restaurant. Understood, Scott. We'll continue following your journey. It is Hogtown Smoke. Give them a call, get your takeout, support the small businesses, and I wish you the very, very best of luck, Scott. And I thank you so thank, much for your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you. Scott Fraser. And again, uh, that post, I kind of think it just summed it up better than I could ever write. That is the face of business. It's not bricks and mortar. Good to have you on this Monday night. And while Adam Skelly becomes a poster child of sorts for small businesses fighting back, he hardly speaks for the very real issues you know, facing small businesses, or I think the very real rights that are being taken away from us. And like him or not, he's got every right to push back and question restrictions that in some cases make sense, but in a lot of you know cases are simply nonsensical very much authoritarian. And uh, while elected officials and some medical experts tell us, you know, we have to do these things, Canadians have every right to question what we're being told to do, because if we don't, we risk losing rights in the long run that will make Canada anything but a free country. Christine Van Gein is a litigation director at the Canadian Constitution Foundation and joins us now. Good to have you, Christine. Thanks for having me on. 
whenever we go into one of these situations, and we really haven't been in one of these situations, I mean, the last time I think we had um, a civil liberties kind of trampled all over would be, I think, during G20. Um, on a mass scale, I mean, how many rights do we generally lose in situations like this? So I would say that this is probably the biggest infringement on our civil liberties since maybe the War Measures Act. Um, There there are massive restrictions on a number of rights. So, for example, gathering restrictions are implicating our right to freedom of assembly, mandatory masks touch on our liberty rights, although I would say that it's a minimal impairment on our liberty rights. Mm -hmm. Um, Travel restrictions impair our mobility rights. Uh, police are doing unauthorized searches in our health records. That was a big story on the front page of the Toronto Star a few weeks ago. Freedom of religion is being infringed by the limits on churches. Uh, freedom of expression by the closing of theaters. I mean, there's so many rights that are being touched upon by government action right now. And I think it's a really crucial time for people to stand up and say, hey, you know, these rights are fundamental and they matter and they can only be restricted in the most severe circumstances. Show us the evidence. Right. And I think that's, you know, why we're seeing so many things like that hair businesses, um, restaurants, small businesses pushing back saying, you know, you're shutting us down. We have no way to earn a keep or pay our bills. Uh, the bills keep coming due. Um, and you're blaming us for something without, you know, any data or proof to back that up. I understand why we're starting to see more businesses push back. I mean, they're losing everything and the government doesn't have to justify the actions. Yeah, I would draw a distinction because business closures are not um, are, are a little bit complicated. Uh, yeah. They don't directly engage our charter rights because our charter doesn't enshrine a right to engage in business or economic activity, although it is a long-established common law right, um, and it's subject already to extensive regulation. So when we talk about businesses being closed, I think that it's actually more the rights of freedom of association and assembly of patrons that are engaged rather than business owners. But from a public policy point of view, it certainly is troubling that these closures have a huge problem of being arbitrary. I mean, my local bookstore up the street Mm -hmm. that I like to go to, I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to see if there were 20 people in this store throughout the entire day, and they've been ordered to to close, let let alone 20 people at a time. Like, they have – this store is, like, so small that it, it usually has no one in it, and if they have someone in it, it's probably one person. But they've been ordered to close, and all the evidence that we've seen on – um, on community spread, which is, you know, last week the government did release a few a few details of that. There, there was really almost no spread in retail stores. So why are retail stores being forced to close? The public won't support rules that are arbitrary and make no sense, um, you know, charter arguments aside. Albeit Canadians are very polite. We tend to do what we're asked to do and we did it in the spring. You know, everyone just played their part. It's getting very much harder now that we're seeing, you know, the collateral damage, which is actual real economic uh, destruction for millions of people across this country. Yeah, I mean, this is a death sentence for a lot of small businesses who do a huge amount of their business at the end of the year. Um, it's, it's, you know, taking someone's livelihood away, taking someone's business that they have spent, you know, years or, or their life building. And, you know, I, I, I think that 
COVID is a real problem, and I think that the government should be taking measures to deal with it. The measures just need to make sense. They need they cannot be arbitrary, and the the government has the onus of showing us the evidence and and showing us that the the infringements that they're asking to make on our rights are justified infringements based on the evidence. And I don't, I think right now in this second lockdown, it's it's very arbitrary, and that's why people are are objecting to it. Yeah, and, and, and there's a growing divide where you've got people who support, I mean, the, the stats kind of still surprise me where you've got, what, 76% still support these lockdown measures. And I think, well, who are they asking? Because if you're in the private sector and you own a business that's affected, there's no way you support such draconian, you know, kind of authoritative um, shutdowns. But, you know, when we see people protesting, it's easy to turn your nose up at them and kind of just dismiss them. But there there are real reasons why we should challenge some of the things that we're being asked to do, because, you know, we always say we're a free country. Well, we're not if we give it all up. No, and, and we are entitled to the information that the government is relying on when making these decisions. And I think that there's been a big information problem. Look, mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of people... Who, who kind of are in this range of reasonableness are are saying, you know, I believe that COVID is a problem and I believe mm-hmm. that the government can take some some measures to respond to it. But these measures are not striking the right balance. Um, Ontario is not the only one who has, has a problem. I mean, look at what's happening in Manitoba where they've yeah. had aisle by aisle closure where some yeah. retailers can remain open, but they need to put up um, you know, tape across the, the the toy aisle because apparently COVID lurks among Pokemon cards, but not uh, milk and eggs. So, I mean, it's you you know you have to know that that decision is not based in science. It's based on a desire to you know create an even playing field between big and small retailers. Well, the government's asking for these these impairments on our rights on the basis of a public health rationale, not an economic rationale. So this type of of restriction is totally not justifiable in my view. Right. And then you have people who start to question, you know, how much are these policies being driven by data or how much of it's being driven by polling, you know, like or lobbying, politicians or, lobbying. or lobbyists, which is, is even worse, is that, you know, who is going to be chosen as the winner and the loser and for what reason? Because once you've lost the trust of the people, they just won't buy into these health measures at all. And they'll say, to hell with it. I'll do whatever I want. Yeah, I mean, the the small bookstore up the street from me that I was talking about yeah. earlier. I mean, why does it need to be closed when when I go into Costco, you know, I can I can buy books in Costco, but the it, it, it's rammed full of people with a huge, huge line. I know that they have a capacity restriction, but it's still busy in there. Mm-hmm. I, I would actually probably be less at risk to to COVID if I just went into my little bookstore up the street. But the government has shut them. It's completely, completely arbitrary. Arbitrary. And um, it's just going to continue to get worse, I think, with the pushback as people really start to suffer because of the uh, the um, costs of it to them. Christine, we'll uh, continue the conversation. I appreciate your time on this. Yeah, thanks for having me on. There you go. Canadian, uh, Christine Van Gogh with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. So again, just because uh, Adam and all these other Andy maskers are out there does not... They don't speak for everybody, but at the same time, it's okay to question these things and push back when you don't agree with it. Just don't be a goofball about it.
Welcome back on this Monday. We've been looking into the devastation we've seen in long-term care homes this year. And it has a lot of people, you know, rethinking how they want to spend their golden years. Global Sandy Salerno looked into what Canadians are doing to avoid putting their loved ones in a nursing home and how to give people what they want the most, which is to age at home. In Ontario, they've made some extremely troubling observations about several long-term care facilities in which they've been serving. Forceful feeding observed by staff causing audible choking and aspiration. Patients observed crying for help with staff not responding for 30 minutes to over two hours. Not being cleaned. These are just standard operating procedures to clean someone. When you feed them, you lift them up. I'm not an expert in health. But I know when you feed someone, you lift them up and feed them. That, that's, it's, it's so disturbing when I, when I read this. It was hard to get through. It was the worst report, most heart-wrenching report I have ever read in my entire life. Ever. With that troubling Canadian Armed Forces report made public and the mounting deaths we've seen in long-term care homes this year, it comes as no surprise a recent survey showed the majority of Canadians are thinking differently about putting their loved ones in a nursing home. I think what the survey really reaffirmed to us is how much people have really thought about their future options and, and their feelings around long-term care. Dr. Sinar Sinha carried out that study. He's the director of geriatrics at Sinai Health System and the University Health Network. I think where people kind of maybe didn't aspire to end up in a home, but for a variety of reasons, I think now they have actual clear reasons to say these are, we have an underfunded long-term care system where the facilities aren't of great quality, that we're understaffing these places. So I think for a lot of people, you know, this was a reality check. It is a reality check that came too late for Marie Tripp. Her mother was a resident at Orchardville in Pickering, one of the homes mentioned in that scathing Canadian Armed Forces report. I wouldn't want to go through what my mother went through and what all other residents that have passed and are still there. The ones that are still there, my gosh. The last window visit she had with her mom came five weeks into lockdown. She tells me that's when she really knew her mother was being neglected. My mom was pretty much delirious, out of it, and it looked like she was dying. She had the call bell in her hand. Now bear in mind, mom didn't have the mental capacity to use the call bell the two years since she had her stroke. She found that and was trying to drink from the call bell. She was so dehydrated. Mary Walsh died three days later of COVID-19. Etobicoke teacher Diana Ruda says her mom and dad, now 88 and 91, came up with their own solution to avoid being sent to a long-term care home. My parents have always said, oh, please, whatever you do, I don't want to be in one of those. I don't want to be in one of those. So they sold their house and moved into hers, 
a modest home she shares with her husband, Robert, and two teenage kids. The house wasn't ready for them because we had we had a, a recreational basement. And so then we had to decide, okay, so where are we going to put them? All the senior-friendly additions you can think of came next. Expenses they paid for out of pocket, including a grab bar in the shower and a chairlift. But Diane admits the one thing that makes us all manageable is the PSWs that come in to help. On Mondays and Thursdays, they get another PSW that comes in and bathes them. And honestly, like my dad would be like, don't make any appointments. No, not Mondays and Thursdays. Like I, that's my bath day, like my shower day. So like, you know, he looks forward to them and they're all his sweeties. Although it's not always easy, Diane knows she made the right choice. Because of this whole COVID thing, having reflected, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, yeah, we have peace of mind that they're here with us and we can watch them and we're keeping them safe. So I am truly thankful that, you know, this was <laughs> something that was uh, pushed upon us, but uh, but I'm thankful that it happened because I, I can imagine them being in a home. Diane's husband, Robert, is grateful too that his older brother has been able to offer care for their mother. She's 89 and in the advanced stages of dementia. It's only possible, he says, because his brother was able to retire early. Unless we can have, if not 24-hour care, if, you know, 12-hour care, uh, we're not even having this conversation uh, because uh, my mom's already at a stage where she cannot be left alone. Is it even possible to get complex care away from a hospital, nursing home, or long-term care facility? We're infusing people, we're running central lines, we're running um, IV pumps, respiratory care, we're looking after people with chronic obstructive lung disease, uh, there's peritoneal dialysis going on. It runs the gamut. Sue Vanderbent is the Chief Executive Officer of Home Care Ontario. She says home care workers are even capable of providing end-of-life care, but they're not funded by the government to do it for everybody. Home care only does about 6% of end-of-life care in, in the home right now. But in other countries, most people, many, many people, end their lives at home. Dr. Sinar Sin has been pushing for an overhaul to the home and community care system for years. Across Canada right now, he tells me there are over 400,000 Canadians with unmet home care needs, and there are 40,000 people waiting to get a bed in long-term care. Those two things are not, are, are not exclusive of each other. If you can't get enough care to support yourself to stay in, in, in your own home, well, where are you going to end up? You're either going to be living in a hospital for $750 a day, or you need to get into a nursing home as soon as possible. But imagine this, if you provide more home and community care that meets what people's needs are, then there'll be less people having to actually go into a nursing home in the first place. So other countries have figured this out. Uh, but when we have a system that grossly underfunds the home care we provide and, you know, the nursing home care we provide, you know, the results speak for themselves. And like Dr. Sinna, the Canadian Association for Retired People believes home care is what the government should be investing in. We should not be putting our our people in large warehouses that are end up being petri dishes for COVID and flu. We that that home care and community care is is what we need. And you know when we did a survey of our CARP members, ninety five percent said they'd rather stay in their own homes. 
Let's support that, make that happen, and not put them into these risky, huge buildings. For Marie Tripp, who no longer has trust in the system, thinking about her own future fills her with dread. A nursing home for her would be a last resort. I would sooner die with dignity at this point than I would to go into a home. Dignity, she says, is something her own mother didn't get. Instead, she got coldness, loneliness, starvation, and dehydration. For Global News, I'm Sandy Salerno. Tomorrow, we look into Care Gone Wrong, our next installment. We explore what cultures are not using nursing homes and why. You can join us Monday through Friday, 6.30 sharp here. On Point, I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.